This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-hosts are Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors, Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree. Also joining us on the program today is Kevin Flanagan, Head of Fixed Income Strategy at Wisdom Tree. Please note Kevin and I are registered representatives at Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to offer sale investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those with Blue Chips Affiliates. Uh, we're discussing how we open the economy. One of our first guests has been publishing and talking a lot about uh, the risks of staying closed and how he thinks we need to be thinking about opening up. We're going to talk about the oil space, one of the big categories we've been coming back to again and again in the last few weeks. A lot of continued volatility. Our second guest is going to give us his take on what's happening in oil, particularly midstream energy companies. Uh, so it'll be interesting part, second part of the show. Uh, but Professor, just checking in, we had March sort of record falls, then April record highs. We're going into May. What are we thinking? Sell in May, go away, at least on Friday? On Friday, look that way. Yeah, we're down about 3% on the S&P. Well, we had absolutely remarkable gains. I mean, I'm not surprised. Yesterday and today we're selling off a little bit, and that certainly could it could go further. I mean, you know, very honestly, the the economic news that we got out and in, in, in terms of the ISM, I mean, it's pretty much on target. As I say, everything is in a rear view mirror. Um, you know, the, the the hit, we're getting March data, of which half is okay and the other half is a disaster. Um, I I like to concentrate on, uh, on a couple of things. First of all, the, the, the good news on the virus front, the... Uh, the remdesivir trials is actually much better than uh, even some of the press made it out to be. Um, and it was actually an interview uh, on CNBC this morning with the um, CEO O'Day of, of it. There's a couple couple things should be noted. Um, first of all, it was so good that they stopped the trial to give the people with the placebo the regular treatment. This is not always done, so this is this is a strong uh, strong result. Um, the 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 fact that they can ramp up to a million doses by the fall or or there shortly thereafter is also extremely good. Uh, the fact that most antivirals actually work better in early uh, administration rather than the late administration. And by the way, um, uh, these in contrast to the University of Chicago study, when none were on ventilators, up to 30 percent were the, on, the, on the ventilators, and and uh, the NIH study. This was actually the best study, better than the Chinese, better than the University of Chicago. This was really a, a very very good study. 30 um, percent were on ventilators, so there's even hope that if it's administered earlier, it will be more effective. Now a lot of people say, yeah, but it's got to be infused in the hospital. It cannot be made into a pill, but it could be made into a nebulizer. Uh, like you take asthma medicine to get into the lugs. I mean, this is all obviously speculative, but really it is good news. And, you know, we're getting other news on on uh, anti, uh, um, not only antivirals, antibodies, and, and vaccine, and a lot of these trials are, are coming out. Um, so I'm, I'm actually very, very encouraged uh, that we're going to have a lot more tools, even if not a vaccine by this so-called second wave. We're going to have a lot more tools. Uh, that said, I mean, you know, you know, there is selective opening. I believe there should be, and there should be monitoring, and we should have more testing to see, identify th- those points. I, de- I, I definitely think we we are moving in that. Um, Cuomo was just on saying that New York cases sort. Deaths are declining very definitely. 
admissions are plateauing at around 900 to 1,000 a day. Um, so the decline is nowhere near as fast as the ramp up. It's really slow. And there is sign of plateauing, so it isn't that all of a sudden it's disappearing. So, you know, one still has to to be very, very careful uh, uh, about this. Um, you know, nothing really else from the – I mean, the second wave of the PPP is on, and, it, I, I, you know, I, I think that we're, we're – some of the flaws of the first one are going to be corrected. More people are getting um, uh, treatment. One last thing I want to say is, and, and I brought this up each time, um, and that is uh, the money supply is exploding uh, in a way that I have never seen before. Uh, in the last five weeks, the M1 money supply is up 17%. That is just about the same that it was up during the entire year of the week before the Lehman bankruptcy to the week, a year later after all the programs that the government. So in five weeks, we have matched, and we're going further. Um, uh, and it is my belief, as I've stated many times, that this tremendous surge of liquidity, once you know when we get treatments and confidence returns, is going to cause very, very strong uh, economic activity um in in uh, in 2021 yeah this is going to be one of the big themes we keep coming back to uh and i know we have kevin from our fixing income team kevin you've been watching some things on the central bank side anything there of we had the fed and we had the ecb anything coming out that you're you're focused on yeah i'm just you know kind of echoing what the professor was saying looking at the fed balance sheet for the latest week um this was the first time we actually saw a little bit of a slowing momentum in their treasury buying, which which is good news. Uh, and I think Powell referred to that uh, or referenced it during his press conference the other day. Uh, essentially, I think the Fed is seeing an easier condition now in the treasury market, so they don't feel the need to be as aggressive in buying. And just to throw some numbers out at you, so if you were to look at a comparison um, right around mid-March before they – came out and said they were going to buy uh, $500 billion in Treasuries, 250 in mortgage backs. And then, of course, after that, they, they pretty much said there's no limits on this. But if you take that six-week period, um, if you were looking at the average Treasury buying at that time, it was $231 billion uh, on a weekly basis. And within this past week, uh, the number came in at only right um, $62 billion. So... Uh, that, I think, is good news. Also, looking at some of the, the, the funding market gauges that we're seeing out there, especially in LIBOR, um, beginning to come down in a visible fashion as well. So I, I think, Professor, to your point, the Fed is cer certainly seeing some results from the programs that are out there. And this is all without even the municipal facility and the primary and secondary corporate market facilities still haven't hit the balance right. sheet yet. So um, that, there's more to come. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy, is Lee Chen on this morning? Yeah, Lee Chen. We have, we have Lee Chen as well. Yeah, but I like your comments on the trends that you see. You follow them so very closely. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. Um, I I think uh, uh, the opening general will be uh, successful. I, I know a lot of people are worried about a spike up, but I think um, a lot of the um, – you know, people taking precautions uh, is enough to uh, make uh, the stabilize. Uh, so I think that risk, I'm I'm on the positive side. Um, in terms of uh, the other therapeutics and vaccines, I don't know enough. I did talk to some people on the vaccine side that they think it's a little bit um, less uh, optimistic in terms of the timeline that the government gets gets out. Uh, but I think uh, the the other you know cases is that you know different states have different ways of opening is actually in some way good because it gives us um, a more data variation. Just like you know Sweden offers uh, uh, another way of looking at this virus. So I think all these are different points of data. One thing I do want to um, point is there's so much um, statistic people focus so much on the death rate. Um, but I really feel that for this virus, the other two statistics, which is the hospitalization rate and the transmission rate, these two rates are actually more important for, for the opening. Because if you believe we can open, then as long as there's hospital capacity, 
then we are okay. And as long as you know the transmission um, is is lower than you know than despite, then I, I believe you know the opening will will be uh, successful. And I think we, except for some of the very early days of the New York, uh, you know, uh, spike, uh, we have been able to accommodate everyone in hospitals and um, everyone with ventilators um, at this point. Yeah, I think all the dashboards, um, almost all the st- most of the states have a hospitalization dashboard. They're all looking pretty good. And the other uh, testing statistic I tracked is from St. Clair County. They, they actually, it's the only state I, I got this statistic, only place they, 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 every day they tell you how many days it takes for a test to turn around. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it, it is more than two days. And now it's, you know, getting closer to 1.5 days. Mm. So all these are good news. I mean, 1.7, depends on day to day, but... You can see that it's a dream, you know, it's a pretty, in the direction-wise, it is getting. I think for this uh, opening, if, if the testing turnaround time can be within one day, then it really uh, helps because the virus transmission uh, is very, you know, this virus transmits very fast. Yeah. So the faster you get testing done, the faster you can identify people. So that statistics, I, I wish more states and counties could release that statistic, but so far Santa Clara County has been releasing that statistic consistently, and almost every day you've seen this number going down. Hey, hey Li Cheng, let me ask you a question. You know, a lot of the concentration or the headlines for Europe have been with Sweden, Italy, and Spain. How about Germany? Do you have any, any insights on what we're seeing in Germany? So Germany, I think uh, I mean, from all the numbers, uh, shows it's really one of the best uh, in Germany. I think Germany in the beginning got a lot of uh, coverage uh, internationally, probably not as much in the U.S., is that their testing was very broad. It was much broader than any other uh, European, um, because in the early, uh, about in February, they released a statistic, what's the median age of the Germans who are tested positive. And in Germany, it's 40, which means, you know, half of the cases lower than 40 years old. And that is the distribution of cases um, if you have wide uh, testing. In the U.S., that statistic has been consistently more than, like, closer to 50 or 55. If you and look that's at why the, the death age rate range. was so low in Germany compared to all the other countries, much lower. Yeah. Because the testing it's, of the cases and, and, and the death rate is so much lower for the younger one, it gave a much lower, way below all the other countries on the, on the death rate uh, relative to the cases confirmed. Yeah. And the, the, the issue Germany is struggling right now is actually exactly the same issue U.S. is struggling. It's the nursing homes. Um, in the U.S., a couple of states, um, for example, Pennsylvania, released very detailed numbers for nursing homes. And I can quote quickly a, a few statistics, which is really shocking in the sense that, you know, in Pennsylvania, 66% of the deaths is in nursing homes and healthcare facilities. And 20% um, cases, uh, they, they account for 20% of cases, but they account for 66% of the deaths. So, of course, we want, you know, the virus to, to lower outside, you know, in the normal environment because nursing homes, they still need people to take care of them, right? There are some people who say, you know, we can just, um, you know, infect the young and protect the old, but that in reality is actually very hard to do because the older people need the young in, in these nursing homes to take care. In the, whole, in the U.S., there are about 1.3 million uh, people who live in nursing homes. Unless you say everybody who take care of them also live in the facility, it's not realistic. So I think Germans also have a similar issue in terms of their deaths. But their testing was pretty wide, and that is, I think that's one of the reasons that the number of new cases, they came in down much faster than every, you know, all the other countries uh, in Europe and including U.S. Let me just bring quickly uh, a reintroduction of the show and uh, our first guest, who I think has some views on how we're going to open the economy that I'd like to get the professor's take on as well. Uh, we're, we're going to bring in Edward Stringham, who's the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. He's also the Davis Professor of Economic Organizations and Innovation at Trinity College, the editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise. Welcome to the program, Ed. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for having me. So I think your colleagues uh, and you hosted a webinar uh, presentation called COVID-19, Must We Choose Between the Economy and Health? What were your basic themes and conclusions from that discussion there? So I think everybody agrees we need to uh, minimize harm and and protect particularly the vulnerable. Uh, The one thing that a lot of people have been portraying is that there's a trade-off between uh, health and the economy, that if we want to protect more people, we need to close the economy. And m- most of the people that I've been interacting with at my institute uh, say that's a false choice and that if we continue this lockdown uh, and uh, overly restrictive policies that prevent people from going to work and uh, food companies from distributing food, that can have uh, consequences that are potentially uh, much worse than the the disease itself. So I think we do need to be focusing on, on protecting the vulnerable and at the same time figuring out how to let uh, 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 just get Americans back to work and, and looking at the potential downsides of keeping us uh, locked down potentially indefinitely. Now, Lucia, you have a view on how soon we should be opening. You know, I, 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 you've yeah, been, you're so, the one of the first to tell me to stay home. Uh, when when do you think you would be <laughs> want to get back out of the house and back into the into the real economy? So the, the great the great news is for optimism. I would say two things. One is the uh, the VIX uh, implied volatility of stock markets uh, uh, CBOE things are are going down a lot from eighty to thirty five, and that's highly correlated maybe by chance, but maybe not, with the uh, number of countries with ri- uh, rising COVID cases of over 5%. So that's been falling a lot worldwide. In New York City, it turns out that uh, go- the go- governor just released a statistic of serology tests. If you test a random sample of New York City residents, look at their blood, see if they have antibodies, which indicates that they fought off the disease. 25% of New Yorkers already have fought off COVID-19. Doctor the other day said that in the Bronx, that number is as high as 40%. And one uh, epidemiology, data scientist who studies epidemiology says, once we're at that stage, we're going to be uh, the virus is already spreading throughout society much faster than, than people thought. And once we get up to 50%, we're already starting to get to what's called community immunity or herd immunity. And we have to be very careful, obviously, for the vulnerable, the people in those nursing homes who are uh, uh, much more likely to get killed by this uh, disease. But that doesn't mean that the rest of society needs to be quarantining in place, especially all of these people who've already had and recovered from the disease. So I think that Sweden actually is taking the right approach. They've let uh, restaurants stay open this entire time. They do practice uh, what we might think of as voluntary social distancing, but they have not shut down businesses and uh, things are going I would say a lot more smoothly there. Um, I, if I may, I wanted. I agree that I think it to, for long term, definitely voluntary um, social distancing is the key. You know, you cannot use you know, uh, just stay forced uh, for people to stay at home. You know, when there are lots of people who also you know. And I do believe the opening will be successful in the sense that lots of people will continue to do um, social distancing. On the other hand, I, I do want to make a quick comment on Sweden. It's true that the Sweden, you know, the economy is still, uh, but actually if you look at the GDP growth, um, they also suffered very much economically as well. So it, um, sure. it is, it's, it's uh, it, you know, the, I believe the economy of growth was, uh, the negative was, was close to their neighbors. And I, I do believe that, like I agree with the professor, I think um, <coughs> more states, because they already have no, uh, if the original goal is um, healthcare capacity not be breached, right now if there's ample healthcare capacity, uh, then states should allow people, you know, to the business to, to open and rely on uh, voluntary um, uh, social distancing. 
I also want to mention about Sweden. It's uh, uh, they have very strict rules, even in restaurants, about uh, no bars, no standing at bars, distances between tables. They've already closed down five of them um, that were not practicing proper rules. They've also closed schools. Um, I think uh, above eighth grade, they also have no sports, uh, no events. It is not like it is not business as usual, life as usual in Sweden. Um, no, yeah. So Completely it's different. not, you know, it, it's, it, and, and, it, and, and these things are, are enforced. It's just a lighter enforcement and an opening like what I think we're getting in the States now, um, moving uh, hopefully towards that Swedish model. Um, yes. Definitely, yeah, also, I agree with everything. Yeah, I want to add one another point is that right now because you know every every country wants to do better for its citizen, right? But because this virus is really you know two year or at least eighteen months war, in some way it's very hard to judge which whether this country's path is on the optimal strategy until you look back in two years back. Like, for example, um, if you know having infection per provide some kind of immunity, then, you know, a country like the U.S., which had, you know, had a run-up, actually offers better position for the second wave. So I think right now it's very, very hard. Of course, we want to learn what what each country is doing well so that we can do, you know, do, do well here as well. But it's very hard to judge whether any country uh, is on the optimal strategy until, you know, two years I, I'm or, or going even to, three years back. I agree. I'm going to wax the philosophical, wasn't it, Kierkegaard, the philosopher, said that we really only understand history uh, by looking backwards, but we're all forced to live it going forward. Uh, <laughs> So we will know in a year, in a year and a half, wow, which model worked the best. Um, Yeah, that's right. What worries me the most is the the supply chains of food. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago about how they're going to have to be euthanizing pigs, which uh, means that there's already people who don't have as much food as they should, and that's really going to negatively impact those people, and uh, so the idea that we could just sit around and do nothing and wait for perfect certainty is just not an option, and to be thinking about having the hospitals not overrun, I think, is a very important thing to think about. The good news is we, uh, it's very clear the hospitals did not get overrun, and so, so, so the initial arguments that I was hearing from the medical community was, uh, let's slow the spread of the disease. You cannot prevent a virus, many viruses perhaps, including this one, from spreading throughout society. It's very clear that it's all over the world, it's all over the United States. So the idea was we don't want to have the hospitals overrun. And they said, okay, stay at home for two weeks. That's very different from an indefinite lockdown, including lockdowns of people who, uh, at this point, it turns out, have already had it, many people, and those people are still locked down. And then also businesses. It's one thing for a business to shutter its doors for two weeks, but to shutter its doors for two months, we've got a situation where the um, oil uh, capacity of storage is it's just clogging up, and that's why we see negative futures prices in that. That's tremendously difficult for oil-producing countries such as Nigeria. Now they're in a very odd situation of potentially needing to uh, close, shutter some of their wells. And it's one thing for us academics in uh, the United States to think about, okay, well, let's put things on hold until we know know things. But, you know, people in Nigeria are going to be facing major, major suffering the longer this thing gets uh, drawn out. Yeah. I think uh, right now, most States are already starting following uh, Georgia and uh, Texas. So I, I think uh, the worry is that, you know, a lot of uh, states will be for, continue uh, shutting down. I think that worry is probably much less. Yeah, and I, actually uh, it, it's interesting because 
I, I went to uh, Trader Joe's here in, in, in Philadelphia on Monday, the March 16th, and this is just when everything was exploding. And I'll tell you, a lot of things were off the shelves and weren't available. I went two days ago, and it was all filled. Now, I do know that there's a, there's a beef problem, and, and some of those uh, processors, uh, you know, are closing down, and Trump has ordered they open. But actually, I, I do think there is enough food. Um, now, we've had food problems with certain portions of our population even before the virus, and we have to be sensitive to that. But actually, I think that from what I look around, there's, there's some of those panic buying is gone, and those panic shortages are gone. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's amazing the way that uh, markets have, have handled it as well. Um, I'm in New York at present, and uh, I could comment the same thing is true here. The stores ran out, and now they have everything that we need, and that's great. But in terms of long-term, there are businesses that have these long-term strategies of distributing things in particular ways. I mentioned the oil a minute ago, where it takes a while before these storage facilities and these boats get full of oil, and you can postpone things for a few weeks, that's not a problem. But if it starts getting to become months, and uh, we, we think about this in the, in the food industry where uh, p people are not able to uh, conduct basic business that is necessary for their long-term businesses to succeed, I think that will be a compounding of the problem. So I do uh, uh, see optimism moving forward. I think we can see that in the uh, Prices, prices in stock markets. I think people are thinking that the economy will get back on track, and I think that we need to be starting to think about uh, the health issues as well. That we can't be uh, just shut down and locked in forever. Well, this this has been a great segment. I wanted to sort of close with one final question for everybody here, just to see get a poll of how people individually here are feeling. Professor Siegel, starting with you, when do you think you'll be going back to Penn? And Lee Chen, when do you think you'll be getting on a train to New York? What are the curious? And then Ed, any other travel schedules? How do you think that that'll play out? Well, I I think we are holding classes in the fall. Definitely. The question is. Um, you know, some will be remotely, they're saying the large classes because of crowding might be remotely. The small classes that have enough, could be distancing every other, might be held. Um, they haven't decided yet. Obviously, it depends on the course. Um, right now, I cannot go to my office without calling up and some security person accompanying me there. I can get into my office. But, it, you know, it is really, you know, under that degree of lockdown. However, they do say, you know, in August that they will reopen uh, the, the building so we could get back to, to our, our offices. I think in New York, most likely will start opening soon, even in May, much, much faster than people are thinking. Uh, in terms of businesses. But on the other hand, for me personally, it's actually the other trend, which I, I think this work from home trend and also work digitally trend will actually further. Uh, so our you know trips to New York will probably less frequent in the sense that, you know, business now realize that, you know, its productivity has kept up uh, when, when, it's, uh, it work, when it's remote working. So that could substantially change how business or particular our kinds of business operate. Yeah, I agree. I think I'm, I'm more productive now. And Ed, your final comments on how you, you are traveling. Uh, I've, I've been stuck in my house for the last six weeks, but I started venturing out the last week going to the pharmacy and it is a little bit gloomy. Everybody is uh, uh, not looking so happy. But I can report, looking out my window, the where uh, do you, you live in Manhattan or I'm there right now, yeah, downtown, and I'm uh, can look out the window and say that the parks used to be empty, maybe a couple people, and then this weekend, uh, more and more people, 15 people, kids out there playing. So I do think that the uh, um, optimism of uh, people thinking that they can, they're not going to die, kids are not going to die if they go outside. 
at least in terms of public sentiment, looks like it's changing here to being more optimistic for the future. That's a great way to end our first segment. We have Ed, Lee Chan, Kevin, thank you. Professor Siegel, thanks for joining. We're going to talk with a oil expert, Brian Kessens of Tortoise Advisor, about all the disruption that's happening in oil. Uh, Ed alluded to some of those uh, shut-ins of wells. We're going to talk how Brian sees it playing out in midstream energy. Brian, welcome to our program. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be here. So Tortoise, uh, you focus on... Uh, what you call essential assets, real assets. Maybe you sort of describe a little bit about your firm and uh, where you're focused, and then we can talk about your background as well. Yeah, yes, for sure. I uh, I joined Tortoise on the investment team. Um, this was a little over 10 years ago, back in 2008, having previously been an energy banker at City in New York. Um, and prior to that, I was an artillery officer in, in the Army. At Tortoise, we're focused on energy, um, and we're based in Kansas City, which is my hometown, Go Chiefs. Um, so moving to Tortoise was really a good fit for me, being um, back to my hometown and, and staying within the energy sector. Specifically at Tortoise, I'm one of uh, four senior portfolio managers that are part of uh, a larger investment team where we manage energy portfolios with a specific focus on oil and gas pipelines. We are fundamentally focused, um, really trying to understand the supply and the demand for oil and, uh, and natural gas. The firm started in 2003 focused on pipelines. And, and what we liked at the time was historically pipelines were, were owned by retail investors, and we thought that there was an opportunity to manage those types of companies in more of an institutional manner. And specifically, what we liked about the companies was the, the pipelines was they're, they're long-lived. They can last between 50 to 100 years if they're properly maintained. They benefit from long-term contracts with investment-grade counterparties, um, some of those are producers, others are on the downstream, like refiners and, and utility customers. They ha- have stable uh, cash flows. Generally, the contracts are, are take or pay or, or volume commitments. Um, and there's a fair amount of current income. Uh, the pipeline companies generate a fair amount of, of income. They don't have a lot of use for it to invest back into the business, so they, they pay pretty healthy distributions or, or dividends, along with an opportunity for some growth due to just higher GDP, a little bit of inflation, and, uh, and some small small uh, projects here and there. Um, since 2003, then, we've expanded our pipeline product offerings and grown to invest in, in what you referred to there being other essential assets um, or assets that have a lot of the same attributes that I just described, um, which generally may be at a high level. We just think that they have to exist um, in order for the economy to grow and, and to function properly. Um, it include, they, they include, um, you know, certainly that the pipelines, but other things along the energy value chain to include renewables, uh, utilities, particularly those that are in transition to more renewables, water infrastructure, and, and even direct lending to social infrastructure like charter schools and senior living facilities. Now, a lot, a lot we can drill into in all these details. Um, just how, on a personal note, how, how is Kansas City? Are you guys opening for your good barbecue that you guys yeah. have down there, or how, how's that going? We are all uh, anxious to open. Uh, I'm on the, uh, the Kansas side of the border, and the expectation is that we're going to open uh, a week from this Monday, and then the broader metropolitan area is expected to open by, by mid-May. So um, I think as the weather uh, continues to improve. We're all anxious to get back to work and to get outside and to get on, you know, with our our more traditional daily lives again. Your Matortis team, you guys thinking about following those guidelines as well, sort of coming back right in, or you guys can take a little bit more time? Yeah, it's a good good question. We've given it a lot of thought. Um, we we've been working from from home for the past, uh, I guess, a little over a little over a month now. Um, and it's gone uh, a lot better than uh, than I expected. We've got a, a morning meeting, and then we instituted an afternoon uh, call as well. Um, and I, I found that working from home is uh, you know nearly as productive as, as being at the, at the office. I think the sense is we're we're going to continue to work from home at least through the the middle part of May, if not maybe extend that to to Memorial Day. But uh, you know we're we're seeing how uh, how it goes, how others are doing it, and uh, we'll probably take our lead depending on how that happens. Yep. Um, 
So let, let's go into a little bit more on what you guys are looking at with this, all the this market disruption and in oil in particular, um, you know, you, you saw the negative prices. How is, when you look at what's going on in oil and that how impacts what your, you guys are investing in and, and your decisions, like what, how do you, how do you characterize the market and what to, what to be thinking about? Yeah, clearly uh, energy's had kind of the, the double whammy of the COVID virus, um, really impacting demand in a big way. And then at least initially, Saudi Arabia and Russia were unable to agree on, on a, a level of production. And in fact, in the month of April, we saw production surge, at least from uh, OPEC and Russia, more so than it has, uh, has historically. Um, so oil or energy broadly had kind of the, the double whammy. Since that, that point in time, though, a lot's happened. Um, I think everyone's recognized that the demand destruction is really significant um, to oil, where um, in a normal market, the world uses about 100 million barrels per day of oil, and that's probably down 20 to, by 20 to 30 million barrels per day, just given the, the stay-at-home orders. So pretty significant, and it's hard for the producers just to automatically shut in 20 to 30 million barrels per day. Yet it has been pretty constructive in that, OPEC plus Russia plus some other countries agreed to curtail 9.7 million barrels per day starting in May. And then we're starting to see a lot of curtailments from other parts of the world as well, um, including the U.S. and Canada, where the expectations are there's probably about 3 million barrels per day of curtailments that we'll see here at some point. Um, Brazil has also shut in some production, Norway and some of the other larger producers too. So all of that is much more constructive as we uh, as we get into May here um, in an oil environment um, versus where we were at in April, where we actually saw at least from OPEC plus um, production actually increase. Um, what we're looking at then is you know there is only so much storage in the in the world to put all these excess barrels, um, and the curtailments are not going to be enough here at least in the short term to prevent storage from continuing to fill. Um, Specifically, um, there's probably a little over a billion barrels globally, so we did enter into this, this period with a fair amount of storage available, and, and uh, we, we certainly have some time to, to, to fix it, yet nonetheless storage is failing. Um, and by our estimates, um, here in the U.S., specifically in, in Cushing, Oklahoma, where you have a significant amount of, of storage in the U.S., um, about 80 million barrels in total, um, according to the EIA, the Energy Information Agency, the Cushing was filled up to about 63 million just last week, and it built about 4 million. So we're we're estimating that the U.S. is going to be pretty full on storage come uh, come mid-May here. Um, the thing that uh, that I think is benefiting is now a lot of states are coming out of these uh, stay-in-place orders. So we're actually seeing um, oil demand start to increase. Um, one of the larger independent refiners, Valero, uh, reported results this this week, and they actually saw an increase in traffic of 14% just in the last two weeks of April. So demand does appear to be coming back, and I think when it when it does come back, it'll come back in an, in an even bigger way. On the flip side of that, supply continues to, to move offline. In fact, today Chevron announced that they're going to shut in 400,000 barrels per day. Um, globally, that's not, not all in the U.S. And I think what the situation just broadly for oil is setting up for is that we're going to see significant curtailments here in the second quarter, demand's going to improve in the third quarter. And when demand does improve, not all that supply that was taken off is, is going to come back. Uh, the reason for that is some of those wells that were shut in need a significant amount of capital to bring them back online. Other wells are not just not going to return to their prior level of production. And then I think before the producers start to increase oil again, they're going to have a, an increased level of discipline. Um, before they do so and want to see higher prices before they bring back uh, any any significant level of production. And the only way to incentivize that new production in a big way is, is through higher prices. Um, so our, our belief is that we are going to see higher oil prices, certainly than where we're at now in the, in the back half of the year in order to incentivize that production. And uh, on top of that, OPEC and Russia need much, much higher prices. So um, we're pretty bullish, at least in the second half of the year, as it relates to oil prices. And then specific to, uh, to our business, we're focused on, on pipelines and, and the transportation of that oil. Certainly the second quarter is going to be weak with gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel volumes way down. Oil volumes will, will decline as well. But we think that the second half of the year is setting up, setting up to be a much better, um, 
fundamental outlook than uh, than here in the second quarter. We're talking with Brian Kessens of a Tortoise Advisors Senior Portfolio Manager on their pipeline strategies, uh, sort of midstream MLP type companies. Brian, uh, you know, the it's fascinating what happened in oil in uh, sort of this negative price movement. Uh, do you think it's possible, you know, as you, as you mentioned, Cushing getting full potentially mid-May and the rolling of these oil contracts? Now, you know, some of the, the strategies supposedly that – were, were part of the cause, you know, may be already going out later out the futures curve. Um, but do you think it's possible we get negative again if we get a few weeks down the road, these contracts have that same potential? I, I think it is, it is possible again. Uh, here in a, in a couple of weeks, the, uh, the June contract will expire. And I think for June, the, the setup is we're going to continue to be pretty full on storage. And I think that to the extent that a lot of financial buyers are, are owners of those contracts and, and don't want to take uh, oil, they don't want to have it delivered at their front door. Um, they can't, right? Like, you've got to be, you gotta be in Cushing. And, and I think that, uh, you know, it's possible, again, that we'll see, uh, see some negative, negative prices. I think uh, people are going to be a little more hesitant to enter into those contracts, particularly over the next uh, week or so. Um, as that potentially sets up again, I, I think all of those are helpful. We probably won't get, you know, the extreme spike to the downside that we got, but it is certainly possible that uh, oil will go negative again, and someone's going to to pay either to take the actual barrels themselves or the or pay to take those contracts away from them. Now, do, do, do some of these things you think have implications for, do you guys think about putting capital to work? Is there a business there and creating more storage capacity given all that's going on? Do you think there's going to be higher demand for storage um, potential? There, there certainly is over the short run extremely high demand for, for storage. Um, we have a, a pool in my neighborhood that's not filled yet, and I was joking to the homeowners association we should just try to fill it with oil. Um, at least for the at least for the time being, um, to build uh, new storage terminals takes it's about um, kind of a three to nine month process. You've got to get the permit permits and then build it, and it, that probably honestly takes a little bit too long um, because I think that demand is going to improve over that over that period. Um, so During the crisis, they could fast track all court sorts of things. Yeah. They've been cutting down timelines for everything. Got to get Trump That's on that true. that admission there. I think I think it's probably too fast for that to happen. But yeah. what we are going to see is people are using rail cars um, for storage. They're using trucks for storage. And then there was one uh, pipeline company um, that said that they have a couple pipelines that are idled or empty right now, and they estimate they can use uh, those pipelines and, and store about 2 million barrels. Um, so all that's helpful. The, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve also is leasing space now. For storage, um, it can only, what we understand, take about 500,000 barrels per day into the facility. But nonetheless, all of that, all of that is helpful to uh, alleviate the, the storage situation. Now, if, if we go back to just the case for midstream, um, you talked about the the retail as being one of the reasons why you guys got into it and and sort of bringing some more institutional management to it. You know, one of the cases I always heard about the midstream was that these pipelines have these long-term contracts that are insensitive to the price of oil yet you know the declines when i look at you know what's happened in the category generally uh has been severe you know obviously not insulated from the price of oil what what would you say is going on there should it be more insulated what do you think the the actual fundamentals are doing with the price decline what's 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 your sense of that whole story yeah that's a good uh uh, good, good observation. We, we definitely think that the sell-off, specifically in oil and gas pipelines or the midstream sector in general, has been um, just a lot sharper than, than it needs to be because the contracts are generally take or pay, or they have the minimum volume commitments, and, and they are pretty durable through these through these time periods. In fact, that's why the contracts exist um, is to protect the midstream companies in, in times of, of distress. Um, certainly, volumes are going to be lower on the on the liquid side here in the second quarter. So I don't want to say that the impact is uh, is not is is nil. Um, by our estimates, the the companies in our portfolio and and then the sector um, are going to see their cash flows down somewhere between five 
all the way maybe up to 20% for those that are a little bit more sensitive um, to volumes. Yet, to your point, um, by the by the end of March, the sector was down about 50%, much more so than the, than the cash flow impact that we're expecting from the underlying companies. One of the reasons for that is uh, closed-end funds own a lot of pipeline or midstream securities, and they employ leverage to the tune of about 25 to 40%. So, you know, not... Not uh, overly so, but uh, and somewhat conservative. Conservative, but uh, nonetheless, in times when there is a little bit of pressure on the stock prices of those companies, the leverage covenants in those closed-in funds essentially force the selling of those assets when they're out of compliance with the tests. So when the market was down a little bit in March, it just became a bit of a, a nasty spiral where selling assets because the market is down just leads to lower prices, which leads to to more selling and. By our calculations, closed-end funds sold about $4.5 billion of securities in the, in the first quarter. And most likely, um, you know, that was in the, in the back part of March there. Um, so we think that not only did you have this fundamental issue, but it was just exacerbated by the technical pressure. And, in fact, once, once that selling appeared to be done, then we have seen midstream stock prices come back a fair amount here so far in April. But we still think that there's a, that there's a long way to go, especially if our – our stress tests where cash flows are only down, depending on the company, kind of between 5 and 20% um, proves, proves that right, which is actually proving, as we go through earnings, um, it's proving to be about the case. Um, so far, what we've seen in, in midstream earnings, and we thought that this could be a catalyst um, for the sector as well as just companies talking about what they're seeing in their business and going back to reemphasize how, hey, how stable the, their contracts are. And we saw uh, one company... Um, in particular, did that earlier this week, where they said, "Look, as it relates to a, a force majeure, these contracts are designed to protect the midstream company, and not necessarily the producer. The midstream company can, t- can continue to provide a service to the to the shipper on the pipeline. So there's really not any concern about a force force majeure on on any any or on on those uh, take or pay contracts that have some minimum volume commitments. So we feel really good about the the overall contract structure." within the portfolios. What we what we do expect is midstream CapEx is likely going to continue to come down this year. This has, as you had a lot of pipelines that were contemplated to be built this year, next year, can be deferred because you're just not going to have that 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 need for them if you have if you have lower volumes. And because CapEx is coming down, companies are frankly going to have a little bit better of a free cash flow uh, profile this year and that free cash flow can be used um, to continue to pay the dividends or distributions, um, or to continue to delever the company, or, or even in in some cases, we think that there'll be some companies that are in the market buying back their own shares, given where the the share prices are. Um, and we have been encouraged. We've seen uh, a number of insiders that have been buying back uh, shares across the across the whole sector. Where in the the first quarter alone, we estimated there was about two hundred million dollars that was bought back from insiders. So. All, all good things that you want to see in a, in a time when there's a lot of uh, stock price distress. Yeah, that's interesting. On on the fundamental dislocation, I mean, you see that in so many different places where you know the the selling begets selling. So that leveraged impact uh, was was really interesting commentary uh, in terms of what was going on. And then they can't relever is one of the things that you're describing to me that be, they almost become permanently delevered in some fashion. We we'll talk about how that mechanic worked just for people you know who, who are hearing about this technical detail about the flows. Yeah, yes. As it relates to the, the closed-end funds, as I was describing, um, they, they sold. They essentially sold their sold their securities. Um, a, lot, a lot of it was was bought on using leverage. And as the, the funds raised the cash, um, the idea is, well, what do you do with the cash? And I, I think that you know, generally, closed-end fund managers are not likely to lever their their closed-end funds back up again, especially because we don't have a haven't had significant stock price improvement yet. So that debt is likely to be retired. And then your upside is, 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 is certainly there as the sector recovers, but it's not necessarily the levered upside that you had before just because you've reduced leverage by, by so much. So yeah. still a fair amount of upside, just it would be hard to recover um, the, entire, um, the, the entire amount that, that was lost just because you don't have that capital working for you any longer. 
Let's talk a little bit about just, you mentioned the, the fundamental drop compared to the price drop. Give you, give our sense of what's the average, when you think about the, the, the current valuations compared to historically, what are the types of cash flows you think that these securities are offering? I mean, given the historically you know 60 basis point tenure that we have, that people are looking for income. Now, clearly this is not, quote unquote, just safe income given the volatility we've had, but it, it may be more safe in fundamentals than the price movements are indicating. What Where do you see the fundamental long-term value story? Yeah, the, uh, we can look at value in a, in a couple of different ways. One is just what's the overall yield. Um, and the overall yield for the sector right now is, is right around 10%, which is uh, it's not a record versus the 10-year Treasury, but uh, versus the 10-year Treasury, historically that spread is between three to 400 basis points. So we're extremely wide relative to, the, to that spread. That's uh, one way to look at it. Um, the average yield, I, I should indicate, historically has been closer to 65 to 7%, so we're well wide of the, the average yield in the sector. And then the other thing that we look at is just what is it from, a, from an EBITDA multiple perspective. The historical EV to EBITDA multiple has been between kind of 11.5 to 12.5 times. And valuations have moved around quite a bit, but today we're probably right at eight times, which is well below kind of one to two standard deviations below the uh, the average. So we still think that there's, uh, even though we've had a little bit of a rally here in April, significant upside left. Um, to characterize it, we think that the, the yield is, is stable at this point, right around 10%. You probably get a little bit of growth, in fact, in dividends and distributions of, of, of call it 2%, which is lower than we've historically seen. But I think that's just because companies are being a little bit more cautious with, uh, with how they're out allocating capital and more focused on liquidity and, and, and debt pay down. Uh, but we think that you do have the ability to see that that multiple expand, uh, EVD but all multiple expand quite a bit back toward um, historical averages, particularly as companies talk about the impacts that they are seeing to their business, how stable the cash flows are. We think investors will generally get comfortable with that, start to look and, and price things, you know, not in the next quarter, but where are we going to be in the next six to 12 months where, you know, we're assuming we're out of the, uh, the yep. stay-in-place orders and we, we see a pretty big demand recovery, and those multiples can move back to more historical levels. Well, it's interesting. I think we're, we're just about out of time, but I think that was a really interesting way to end. I mean, I think when you have 10% average yields, uh, there's very few segments of the market that are that are priced there. So clearly the market is skeptical. They're going to be able to keep these dividends. And if they can actually grow the dividends 2%, that would actually be a, a big statement. Yeah. So uh, we, uh, we, we've been through these cycles before. We, we went through the financial crisis of 08, yeah. 09, and then we did see oil touch $27. In, uh, in early 2016 as well. We got, and, uh, we got to go, Brian. Thank you so much. It's been a great show. Thanks to our producer, sound engineer. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.